So what do you think? Purple rain, right? <laughs> David Hanold came up to me after the first service and he said, did you wear that in honor of Prince? Not really. This is the robe you gave me on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of my ordination. So thank you. So as I've been saying, four of the 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament were written from prison. So I've been preaching this sermon series called Letters from Prison. We've already looked at Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. Today we look at the fourth and last, Philemon, and then I promise I will drop this hobby horse. Today we're in the unusual situation of reading a whole book of the Bible in one worship service. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to our friend Philemon, our co-worker, and to the church which meets at Philemon's house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. When I, remember in you, when I remember you in my prayers, I thank God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith towards the Lord Jesus. And so I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. And I'm sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me, so that he might be of service to me during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary rather than something that is forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but now as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? And so, Philemon, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way, count that to my account. Confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping through your prayers to be restored to you the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to you. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here's a list of the world's shortest books. This is an old internet meme that was trending before any of us knew that trending was a thing. The world's shortest books. Career opportunities for art history majors, <laughs> French hospitality, the Amish phone book, How to Treat a Lady by Ray Rice, Things I Won't Do for Money by Miley Cyrus, To All the Men I've Loved Before by Ellen DeGeneres, Everything Men Know About Women, Everything Women Know About Men, Different Ways to Spell Bob, Subtlety and Decorum by Donald Trump. And the world's number one shortest book is The Book of Virtues by Bill Clinton. At 335 words, The Book of Philemon is the third shortest book in our Bibles. And if you can tell me which two are shorter without looking it up, I'll let you take me out to lunch. There are many good things about short books. Short books are thin, so they're easy to pack in your carry-on on the train or on your flight to Seattle. And 
Short books are light so that you can read them while you're walking the dog. And short books are efficient. One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich might be the most important book of the 20th century. It took me three hours to read it, 159 pages. Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is a masterpiece. That will take you about four hours. There are some less helpful things about short books, though. For one thing, short books leave a lot of information out that might help us understand those short books. Obese books leave nothing out, right? If you've read War and Peace or Les Miserables or Moby Dick, you know that Tolstoy and Hugo and Melville never took a red pencil to a single idea they ever thought. And so you learn a lot more than you wanted to know about Russian artillery or the sewers of Paris or how to process a whale carcass while under full sail. Short books, on the other hand, leave out a lot of information, like Philemon. Now, this is true of all of Paul's letters, right? Even the most transparent and complete, like Romans and 1 Corinthians. With all of Paul's letters, it's like listening to one half of a telephone conversation, right? We only get half of the information we need to understand what's going on. And this is even truer of Philemon because it's so short. So I'm giving you my best guess as to what's going on in this letter. Paul tells us, first of all, that he wrote this letter from prison. And my guess is that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison cell near the end of his life. He's about 60 years old. This is probably about 60 A.D., maybe 62, not long before he was martyred by the emperor Nero. And he's probably dictating this letter to his secretary, Timothy. And he's writing to his friend Philemon to convince Philemon to take back a runaway slave named Onesimus. Philemon is mentioned only one other time in or outside the pages of the Bible, so we don't know much about him, but we do know that he was a faithful Christian, that he'd come to faith under the persuasion of Paul himself, and that he was probably a member of the Christian congregation at Colossae, a small town in what is now Turkey. And Philemon was such a faithful Christian that he hosted the church. They worshipped in his house. So that means he must have had a sizable house and he must be a wealthy man. If we asked you to host worship at your house, we would probably safely assume that you weren't on food stamps, that you had a sizable house. And Philemon is also rich enough to own slaves, at least one slave. And so Philemon has this slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus decides to run away from his master. And not only that, but on his way out of town, he seems to have stolen some money or some property, and now he is in big trouble because you know how big an offense this was, a runaway slave, in ancient Rome. You've seen Spartacus and Gladiator, right? The best thing that would happen to you upon recapture is that they would brand your forehead with a large F for fugitive, and the worst thing that could happen is that they would hang you on a cross like Jesus himself. So Onesimus is in big trouble, he's having second thoughts, and somehow he makes his way to Paul's Roman prison cell to convince Paul to plead with Philemon to take him back without serious consequences. Take him back, begs Paul, Welcome him as if you were welcoming me. And oh, by the way, if he's stolen anything, I'm good for it. I'll pay. So that's all there is to this book of Philemon. It's one Christian asking a second Christian to be kind to a third Christian. 
Beyond that, there is no ethical teaching in this book. There is no theology. There's no ecclesiology. There are no warnings against heresy, as in other of Paul's letters. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is this private letter doing in our Bibles? How is this God's Word for us today? In fact, down the centuries, many Christians have wondered whether Philemon has done more harm than good. Because, of course, in it, Paul seems to give his stamp of approval to the institution of slavery. Or at least he eschews a golden opportunity to question the morality of one human being owning another human being. He's completely silent on that subject. Before the Civil War, pro-slavery Americans would brandish Philemon as a weapon against abolitionists because in God's holy word, no less an authority than the Apostle Paul himself took slavery for granted. He didn't even call it a necessary evil. Americans, before the abolition movement, in fact, even talked about the Pauline mandate. That is to say, many Americans thought that Paul was on the side of the slaveholders rather than on the side of the slaves. In the 1960s, Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota and Senator A. Willis Robertson of Virginia were both Democrats in the United States Senate. A. Willis Robertson was the father of Pat Robertson, who would become the famous televangelist. So Willis Robertson was a pious Christian. And so Senator, liberal Senator McCarthy from Minnesota asks conservative Senator Robertson from Virginia to vote for a modest civil rights legislation. And Senator Robertson replies, I'd sure like to help the colored Senator McCarthy, but the Bible says I can't. That's the Pauline mandate. So for hundreds of years in the Roman Empire and for 300 more in the Americas, slaves were considered to be less than human. Their official label was living tools. And when you call other human beings living tools for 300 years on our side of the world, the shadow that casts is dark and long and the legacy is ugly. Have any of you seen this wonderful new documentary about Jackie Robinson by Ken Burns on PBS? It's just shocking what we Americans can get used to after 300 years of referring to other human beings as living tools. Jackie was born to sharecroppers in Georgia, of course, but he moved to Pasadena before he was a year old, so he spent his childhood and youth in California. And he was such a spectacular four-sport athlete at his California high school that when it came time for Jackie to choose a college, he got a letter from a wealthy Stanford alumnus. Dear Mr. Robertson, said the letter, I will pay your full tuition for four years at any university in the land as long as that university does not play Stanford in athletics. <laughs> now, Jackie refused that offer, of course, and matriculated at UCLA, which of course does play Stanford in athletics. And he again was a four-sport four standout. Anyway, Jackie spent his childhood in Pasadena in the 1920s and 30s, where a controversy was raging about who got to use the public swimming pool. White Americans didn't want to share it, but Japanese Americans and Mexican Americans and African Americans wanted to use the pool. So they reached a compromise. 
African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Japanese-Americans could use the pool on Tuesdays. But they promised the whites that every Tuesday evening they would drain the pool before the whites could use it again. Just stunning what we can get used to after that 300-year legacy. And Paul has his own contribution to make to that. And so what is this short private letter doing in our Bibles and how is it God's word for us? I am glad you asked. I have two suggestions today. You can take your pick. Two suggestions. You can be Paul or you can be Philemon. Suggestion number one, put yourself in Paul's sandals for just a minute. That is to say, ask yourself, who needs a letter of recommendation from me today? Who needs a kind word? Whose cause can I champion? Whose well-being can I protect? I came across a wonderful new phrase this week in my studies. I came across the phrase, amicus domini. If you've taken even a little Latin in prep school or college, you can take that apart. Amicus domini literally means friend of the master. And so Paul, being Philemon's friend, is amicus domini to Onesimus. He's a friend of Onesimus's master. And you see the wisdom of this strategy, right? If you are in trouble with your boss, don't go crawling back to your boss. He won't listen to you. You have no credibility with him. Go to his wife or his boss or his best friend, somebody who has his ear. You might need an amicus domini. It's a great story told about Caesar Augustus, Roman emperor, of course, when Jesus was born, and also one of the wisest leaders in the history of the world. Caesar was having dinner with a Roman aristocrat in Rome, a member of the Roman equestrian class, and during dinner at the host's house, a slave dropped a crystal goblet and it broke. And Caesar's host was so enraged by this that he took the slave by the throat and ordered him to be cast into a pond full of man-eating lamprey eels. I didn't know there was such a thing, but it was handy there for this aristocrat's purposes. And the slave goes running over to Caesar and falls on the ground and puts his arms around Caesar's feet and pleads for nothing more than a more merciful death. And Caesar gets up from his chair and raises the slave up and orders that the pond be filled in with dirt instantly and that every goblet in the house be broken. Sometimes you need an amicus domini, a friend of the master. So here's a spiritual discipline for you. Try this this week. I dare you. The next time you're talking to someone you do like about somebody you don't like, at coffee, on a walk, at school, at work, the next time you're talking to someone you do like about someone you don't like, and your conversation partner, the one you do like, says something negative about the person you both don't like, tell her how wrong she is. I'll bet you can't do it. But try it anyway. It will be a spiritual victory. The beginning of the end of gossip as we know it. Who needs a kind word from you? Who needs a letter of recommendation? Or, if that suggestion fails to electrify your spark plugs, if that leaves you cold, try this second suggestion. Put yourself in Philemon's sandals for just a moment. That is to say, ask yourself, whom do I need to welcome back into my life after substantial estrangement? Who has seriously injured me but now deserves my grace?
This was my friend Becky Knight's idea. Joe Forrest was leading a Bible study on Philemon, and she knew I was going to. She knew I was going to preach this sermon, so she invited me to attend, and I went. And we were asking ourselves the question I've just been asking you: What is this doing in our Bibles? How is this God's word for us today? And Becky said, "Well, I think maybe God is asking me, who is your Onesimus? Who is your Onesimus?" Maybe the question is, what miserable man or mean maid merits a modest modicum of my marvelous mercy? The father who ignored you, the husband who betrayed you, the supervisor who fired you, the coach who benched you, the vendor who deceived you, the client who stole your work, the former friends who shut you out of a circle you wanted to be part of. One last letter from prison, and then I will quit for good. I don't know how many of you got to see the opera Dead Man Walking at Northwestern University a year or so ago. Do you know who played Sister Helen Prejean? Our own Quinn Middleman. We were so proud of her. We just can't believe that a person who can sing an opera like that at Northwestern sings for us and God every Sunday morning. There and here, she preaches the gospel. Yeah, you know, Susan Sarandon did a nice job of playing Sister Helen Prejean in the Hollywood movie, but I preferred Quinn in the Evanston Opera. And you know the story, right? If you've read the book or seen the movie, Matthew Poncelet is on death row for committing a brutal rape and murder. And he's feeling sorry for himself, as well he might. And he says to Sister Helen Prejean, this Roman Catholic nun who befriends him, Matthew says to her, I'm just like Jesus. They're going to kill me. And Sister Helen is horrified by this. She's just shocked. She says, oh, Matthew, you're nothing like Jesus. Jesus died for love. And you stood by when two innocent teenagers were killed in cold blood. But she stays with him, right? And the story progresses. And near the end, Sister Helen finds the latent humanity in Matthew Poncelet, this murderer. And she says to him, Matthew, you're a child of God. And then if you've seen the film, you know that Matthew will die a little bit like Jesus strapped to a cruciform gurney with his arms outstretched. Matthew, you're a child of God, she prays. We all need someone to send us a letter of recommendation. Martin Luther never wondered why Philemon was in the New Testament. He got it on first reading. He says, Paul pleads for Onesimus before Philemon, just the way Jesus pleads for us before the Father. You see, we've done wrong. We've run away. We are fugitives. And we need somebody to say a kind word to the Father for us. And we go to Jesus, and he goes to his Father, and when we run home, we're welcomed with grace and peace. We are all Christ's Onesimus. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.